Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Sylvia. So Sylvia, if you can tell me when and where you were born... And then if you can describe what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. So, Sylvia, over to you. So great to be on here, Tim, and thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast in the UK. So very, very excited to be uh, with you today. Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas currently, but I grew up in South Texas. So if you continue going south all the way till you hit the border with Mexico, that's where I grew up. That's where um, I was raised by two Mexican-born parents um, who emigrated in 1968 uh, to Chicago, of all places. My father uh, finished his medical degree here in the United States and then uh, was uh, shipped off to Vietnam upon entering the United States as a, as a medical surgeon. They kind of said, we're inviting you to participate in this war. And so he was like, yeah, yeah. great. Oh, <laughs> uh, so that's where their odyssey starts, right? Mm. And I'm the oldest of three children. I was raised in a Catholic home. And my father, as you know, is a doctor. My mother was a homemaker. So we had the benefit and beautiful childhood because my mother was around. And she was a very playful person. She still is to this day. She's 81 years old. And she still plays with her grandchildren, much like she played with us. Very, very outdoorsy type of play with us. So she would take us on bike rides. And But I also grew up with a dad who... Um, had a lot of not enoughness. He, he did not feel enough. He came for, from an abusive home uh, from Monterrey, Mexico. And uh, his father was an alcoholic, abusive man who would beat up his mom in front of them. So he was a less than affectionate kind of dad. He didn't know how to be affectionate. And but he did his best to show us hard work and integrity. Those were his top values that he taught his children. And, you know, being the oldest, you kind of get practiced on, you know, since we don't come with manuals as kids. Um, And so I was I was the oldest. And so they kind of practiced a lot on me. And so I I became a a highly responsible person. Um, And I, I was taught the value of responsibility in in various ways my father is a highly responsible individual but i also encountered a trauma when i was seven years old we were on vacation and i i was five years older than my baby sister roxanne and my dad had promised we would see snow and um and so we start climbing the summit. And when you come from at sea level, <laughs> which is where we grew up, you know, you you go, you fly into Mexico City and you fly into like a ton of altitude. And then on top of that, you're now climbing up a summit to go see a dormant volcano. Well, yeah, your blood pressure is going to be in a different state, right? And you're a little kid. And um, and half of them, you know, as we started climbing, it was an extended family trip. Um decided to descend down and my dad wanted to stop and I kind of put my hands on my hips and I said you know you promised us we would see snow and you woke us up at 5 a.m and so being the demanding child that I was my father kind of gave in to my seven-year-old demands and mm. we continued up the summit and my sister you know we played with the snow um when she got cold she kind of stuck her hands in her pockets and she started to climb down to kind of meet up with dad and her feet got tangled and she started to roll down the summit and she hit a rock and um, all of a sudden you have like an explosion of blood and so I run being the oldest child to see what what is going on and my dad and his fear and anger kind of turns to me and says if your sister dies it will be your fault so I kind of learned the value <laughs> of responsibility in a very traumatic way you know and um mm. And so my upbringing was kind of a combination of playfulness, but also my subconscious mind kind of took on this, um, oh, I don't know. Um, Responsibility, I, I guess. Idea, idea. I, at the moment of that trauma, I become a person who seeks security in all areas of life. 
because I lost control of a situation in my young seven-year-old mind. And so I become a security seeker. So I'm going to go in and start working in an arena I'm familiar with. And that's how I end up uh, in medical sales when I grow up. It's not something that I originally started off as. You know, my desires are very different than Mm. what the modeling I received. But overall, I mean, we were pretty lucky because we – we were we were raised by very responsible parents, uh, very playful parents. So we had a good mix. But yeah, we had a little bit of trauma <laughs> at the beginning of my life. <laughs> and um, and that's chapter one of my first book. So I kind of describe how limiting beliefs get formed and, and they usually get formed at the moment of trauma and certain mm-hmm. patterns of behavior get formed at that moment of trauma. And, it, and yeah. they're usually attached to a feeling of, of um, in my case, I kind of lost control. So whatever, like doubt, when doubt shows up that was a big thing that would show up all these other things would come into play so so who who said give me the child at seven and i will give you the man was that mark twain i don't know i would think so anyway yeah (laughs) so it it was basically you keep start with a seven-year-old and you can mold mold him into to being the the grown-up that they've become Yes, but um, I guess that at seven had that impact. So there's some truth in that little saying. Then, so um, what about school? School is so, interesting. So you came um, back sort of seven, I guess you were in uh, year one. Was it? Was that year one? Seven is year two in the United States. So year, um, year one, year two, uh, around that time, I was the youngest in, in a second grade class. And um, Catholic upbringing, when you, when you have a trauma like that and you become responsible almost overnight, um, a therapist once described what my dad did in that one moment was he transferred his parental responsibilities over to me. Well, when you do that, Unfortunately, what happens is you become an adult overnight and you are unable to relate to your peers. So I was able to relate to peers way older than me, but not Mm. peers within my own class. And it affects me because I act so much older and my ideas are so much different than and a lot more advanced, if you will. I get bullied in high school and Mm. it's it's another trauma that i carry uh for a long time inside of me and it really does develop that uh inner person i become the strong individual independent individual but it also contributes to a great deal of limiting beliefs that i carry that kind of steer my choices in life later on um in high school i developed two limiting beliefs of i'm second choice and um that comes about because uh, a boy invites me to a dance uh, it's a very common thing here in the united states you get invited to these proms and homecomings and what have you and then two days before the dance he kind of pulls out out of peer pressure uh, he's invited another girl to the dance and i'm left with my dress and my shoes and nowhere to be um but luckily i have like an awesome mom who says you know what you can either become their victim um, and stay here at home and I'm still going to love you because you're my daughter or you can invite another boy to the dance and, and go out and have the time of your life and face your bullies head on. So it's, it's your choice. Mm-hmm. And I and I choose the latter. I My mom had a plan. She called a friend yep. and and uh, and this boy is four years older than me. So now I'm going to the dance with a college guy. You know, so I'm very different, right? So, uh, a very different twist to the story, and um, but when you but when you believe your second choice to any man in your life, anytime another woman comes into play in your marriage or something, any ex girlfriends or whatever, that belief is going to surface and it's going to mm-hmm. wreak havoc, and you're not even going to know it's happening. You're just not going to feel good. You're going to feel uh, lack of confidence and and you don't know why. Uh, I don't understand all this until I become a coach in 2017. And that's like way later after Mm. my medical sales career. Um, Anyway, let's let's stop racing ahead. Else it'll be over far too quick. (laughs) So let's let's drag you back to um, to your middle school. So what was what was your middle school like? Was it was it a big school? Was it a small school? Um, My middle school, um, 
really, there, there was no middle school when I grew up. There was either elementary school or junior high, high school. And it was the same school. And those were elementary. weird years. Yeah. Well, so, well, well, was it, because if you're in, you're in the real south of, of uh, Texas. Yes. Uh, on, yes. On, on, on the border of Mexico. And your first language is Spanish. What was you learning in school? I was learning English. And all the other subjects, you know, all the, all the you know, English, math, um, mm. writing, history, uh, political science, marine biology, all the sciences that they can do. In elementary school, they start off very basic and fundamental, mm. very different from Europe and from the UK, um, because we don't learn languages till we get into high school. Yeah. That's like a long time. You guys start super early in life. Yeah. Because there's a lot more worldly um, education abroad, and I know that. Well, from, well from actually, the, the the English are fairly bad at learning languages. Oh, <laughs> because, well then. because English is the international language of the world, mm-hmm. we kind of don't really find the need, or or find it difficult to learn languages. I mean, for me personally, I mean, I make it a, a point of, when I'm in a foreign country to learn a, a, a few of the, the key phrases. I mean, of course. Uh, like, uh, for instance, bonjour, mademoiselle, ça va, avez-vous, um, tea for me, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> um, so you learn, learn the basics or, or hola, por favor, um, dos cerveza, cerveza. So you learn the key phrases that you need to get yourself around. Of course. Um, And and I found that as long as you try, and and when I try, it's fairly bad. So I generally get an answer back in English. So it kind of works for me. Well, that's great. That's great, and yeah. and I'm I'm happy to hear that you are learning how to say, you know, could I have some beer in Spanish? Because you know our beer is pretty yeah, yeah. phenomenal if you go to Mexico. Uh, but dos cervezas, dos cervezas, and uh, tortilla. Tortilla, oh, yes, yes. There's there's so much of that. Tamal, you know, uh, but uh, I so I really like. Growing up in South Texas, they it's a lot of Hispanic influence. So a mm. lot of uh, even at elementary school, you would hear you go into the uh, schoolyard and hear Spanish being spoken everywhere because the majority yeah. of the kids in the schoolyard come from Hispanic backgrounds, and yeah. very few were uh, full, you know, like American, truly uh, white American, only English speaking Americans. Um, there's a lot of Hispanic influence in those areas, and um, in fact, when my husband went down there the very first couple of times he went down there, he was really surprised that he was the only one, very few, only one speaking. English at the store. The majority of the language spoken was Spanish. And yeah. so you you had that influence and you had that, I had that upbringing and, and highly Catholic. So very um, rules-based, as we all know, the Catholics can be very rules-based, very yeah. traditional. Yeah, and, the old spectacles, testicles, wallet and watch. Yes, all of that. Yeah, I know all of them. And, go, and go I and go... Say it. Go and say half a dozen Hail Marys. <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, you learn these these prayers, but you don't really learn relationship with mm. with Christ. You don't you you learn how to pray, but and you know about the religion, but you don't really understand relationship. Right. So yeah. that that was the upbringing and that was what was, you know, a very traditional, very um yeah. So at home then you were you were speaking Spanish. Yes, because our parents said we're here in the United States. We'll adopt their uh, customs. So we we celebrated Thanksgiving, which is a very common uh, United States holiday. Yeah. Uh, but that's not something we celebrate in Mexico. So my parents were like, we're still going to adopt their customs, but we want you guys to be proud of your origin. And your origin is Mexico. And we want you all to be fluent in two languages and more importantly, fluent in two cultures. 
like truly mm. understand yeah. the culture and the foods. And, and so every summer we spent in Mexico City and, and traveling uh, uh, all of Mexico. So they were really, you know, yeah. insistent on that upbringing. So, say, so how did it work at home? Did, did did one of your parents speak English to you? The other one speak Spanish, or or both spoke you, Spanish. It's just a right old mix up. So, I guess in the early years you must have been fairly confused about <laughs> when you're speaking to somebody. Well, no, because when you when you grew up in the United States like we did, first generation, you start going to school in English, so you're basically mm. learning both languages at the same time. And so it wasn't really confusing for me. And I have a, an affinity or, a, a, yeah, an affinity to languages. That is a strength of mine. It's a, a, a natural ability of mine. So yeah. it was real easy for me to pick up languages. And um, even the language of music, which can be quite difficult to pick up, um, is something mm. that we're currently instilling in our children because it helps them in their development um, yeah. enormously in their development. So, yeah. Well, my, myself, I mean, I can't even carry a tune in a bucket. <laughs> you would have like really been in like, like out of yeah. the water if you had come to our family reunions on my mother's side of the family. It's all music-loving people. Oh, don't and get me wrong. When I, when I sing, I can clear a room. Oh, I'm sure you can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can. <laughs> so. So, they'll, 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 when I have a karaoke on at a pub and uh, it's, it's kicking out time and, and, and people aren't keen on leaving, they turn me to and I'll have a, a few bear tunes and, and and have a bit of a sing and everybody's leaving very quickly. Can't work out why. But if it brings <laughs> you joy, Tim, knock yourself out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, carol services are great. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> everybody awesome. around me is out. <laughs> it's all good but you know what we're praising yeah. we're praising our joyful hearts so you know absolutely uh, all, all power to us um mm. there's tons of music in my house uh we just got our seven-year-old to start piano lessons and i actually joined her because i nice. i never really learned how to read music when i was little um i simply would sit at the piano my mom would teach me the song and i would mm. just practice and practice and practice until i mastered the song but i was always a music loving. I sang with my family and I participated in theater. And so that comes, you know, all these natural abilities uh -huh. and, um, and, and this independence. Right. And so grew up with all of that. It was, it was a fun childhood, despite the trauma, it was a very mm. fun childhood. So when, when did you start doing theater? In high school, in high school, actually. Yeah. In high school. Or junior high or? In, in no, junior, junior high? high, I really, um, I did a lot of dance. So I was on stage quite a bit. Um, and uh, and I, I mean, all of it, jazz, tap, ballet, the whole nine yards. And, uh, and so I was very comfortable on stage and with music. Um, and then as I got older, I really wanted to continue theater. Um, and so I did a couple of courses in college, but I since dropped it because it wasn't my, my gig. Right. It just mm. wasn't something that really filled me. And plus, my modeling was kind of gearing me to be in this highly responsible, highly achieved type of environment um, because that's how my father was. He was a high achiever, right? So he's trying mm. to make up for him not feeling enough. Um, so he achieves to be happy and, and we pick up on that as young people because it's a big push for him. And it's a big push for my mom who never got uh, the opportunity to go to college. So she pushes her two daughters to get college degrees and it's a very big push in our home, right? Mm. So you have a, a big mix going on <laughs> yeah so i know you did a lot of stuff on stage that was pr primary dance um so you're not a budding thespian then yes pass that on to my my firstborn M mm. my my son is big time theater uh, buff and has taken tons of classes and 
and likely will major in theater in college. I have no doubt. And lots of talent. So, so did you go into any shows? Did you do any shows? Uh, no, none of that. No, none no, of that. Missed no. out on all of that. No, so just what? stuck to the courses. That was it. Yeah, so so you didn't put um, musicals on or plays on during your your high school. No, we did some monologues, which kind of prepared me uh, for later on as a speaker to to mm-hmm. stand on stages and be able to do that. Um, it's interesting how even then you could see that development early on. The leadership qualities get developed pretty early on. Yeah. And, and a big piece of that is being comfortable and confident to stand on stage and perform in front of audiences. And I think dance helps young ladies do that. Young men mm-hmm. and young ladies do that and get out of that that insecure shell that sometimes yeah. you know we're awkward teenagers. And uh, when you get bullied like I did, I felt awkward sometimes. I felt out of mm. place. So... <laughs> So what was your your best subject in high school? English. What did you enjoy the writing. most? Writing. <laughs> <laughs> writing. Interestingly enough, writing um, was my favorite subject. I loved reading and writing, and it just came very naturally to me. Mm. Very, very naturally. In fact, my best friends um, in high school were my teachers, they they oh, were right. they remember I don't relate to my peers so I always seek you know older mm-hmm. people and my English teacher in high school at my senior year right before college uh, Jan Johnson she really had an enormous influence on me as a writer um, was constantly in, empowering me to write she always saw it in my writing as a young even in my earlier years in elementary I had a lot of teachers that said you really should be a writer that is your strength that is that is something that just fills you with joy you can see it in your eyes when you turn in a paper um, and it was something that I really enjoyed doing. Mm. Interestingly enough, I don't find that journey. I don't continue that writing journey till way later in my life. Interesting mm. how that works out. So what was your worst subject? What one did you dislike going to immensely? And which one did you play hooky most from? <laughs> math. I could not stand math. You know, I was like, no. I just could not oh, do it. I felt ill today. I can't do maths. No, I just when anything to do with geometry, trigonometry, anything like that, I was like, oh gosh, no, I just could not do it. <laughs> it was not my strength at all, and I and I, I detested it. <laughs> so you struggled with that then enormously, enormously. Mm-hmm. So you clearly managed to graduate and uh, go off to college. Where did yes. you go to college? I went to a. Uh, uh, private liberal arts college called um, Austin College of all things and it's not in Austin, Texas it's in Sherman, Texas right on the border of Texas and Oklahoma I went from one border to the other (laughs) very small very private uh, less than 1800 students total Um, so very very small Uh, but it had a phenomenal uh, study abroad program and that's what kind of intrigued me I was very uh-huh. intrigued by um, those types of programs because I loved cultures and I loved languages and it was a strength of mine. So I looked at that and I looked at international studies programs because my, my goal and my dream was to to work and study abroad too. It was one of my dreams. So I ended up going to this four-year college and I, I absolutely fell in love with it. It was beautiful. In fact, my English teacher in high school, Jan Johnson, was the one that recommended me to go there. And so, I, like I said, she had a huge influence in who I was and who I became as a writer. And, in fact, she's featured in one of the chapters in my book because I, I wanted to to give her credit for, for the role she played in my life. And, um, unfortunately, Jan passed away about a year after we graduated from high school from cancer. Mm-hmm. So, I um, very recently ago contacted her family 
I knew her family lived somewhere here in Austin and I found them and I delivered the book to them. I, I signed it, right. autographed it, and, um, and I gave it to her granddaughter. And I told her how special her grandmother had been. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's really nice. So, what did you major in? International studies in French. I double majored. Um, and it was, it was exciting. It, mm. I, but I did get to do a lot of writing. <laughs> that was awesome. Because <laughs> to me, 20-page papers were like a treat. Uh, for yeah. someone like my husband, that was torture. Because he's, he's an electrical engineer. So his strength is math and science. Mm. <laughs> Not writing <laughs> at all. So that, that really would have, like, he would have been tortured but, mm. from having to do these papers. So <clears throat> I was excited. So, so from the French, French point, did you, did you learn that? Uh, did you pick it up in elementary and uh, high school or did you just fresh when you got into college? No, I actually started in high school. I did like three or four years in high school. And then um, I ended up taking it in college very briefly. I, I When I first started at Austin College, I had this idea to major in international studies and minor in political science. So that's how I started off. But then... Um, my junior year, I decided to go abroad um, because they gave me a choice as an international studies major to either study six months in Washington, D.C. and work for the State Department or um, study abroad. And I thought to myself, well, gee, that's a really hard decision. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went and I studied abroad in Lyon, France. For It was originally going to be for six months, but it turned out to be a year. And when I came back, I had, I wanted to graduate on time because it was a very expensive college. And I, being the responsible person that I grew up to be, I did not want to be a, a financial burden to my parents. And so I came back and did summer at Austin College to finish. And I dropped the political science minor and I majored in French because I had enough credits in, in French to be able to major in it. So... <clears throat> What were you doing in Leon? Where, where did, did you did they get did you get put up on a campus or did you live with a family? Um, uh, how did that work? And 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 did you go to university down in Leon? Yes, I did. I I went to the university uh, Université Lumière Leon II, and that's where we were. And all foreign exchange students were there. And for the first month, we were in a co-ed campus. Um, so I got to share a bathroom with boys, which was such a big, big culture shock <laughs> for this American girl. <laughs> we were not used to that. Not even at college. We didn't have – we had one co-ed campus, but I wasn't there. I was with a bunch of girls. Um, so it was a really big culture shock. And I actually talk about it in chapter four of my first book, because I wanted um, people to experience France from my point of view, from the, my college eyes, and yeah. just all the differences between our cultures, because there's quite a few. And um, but it was joyful experience. It was a very joyful experience because then after that, I got placed with a family in a very ritzy part of Lyon, France. So I was very lucky because I didn't end up in like the outskirts of Lyon. I ended up somewhere at central, but beautiful. Um, and my room overlooked the park. And so I was able to observe the French in, in a very beautiful and quiet, calm way. Um, I can still see the park when I close my eyes and when I described it in the book of seeing the older men playing petanque, you know, that bocce ball, yeah. the, the equivalent of bocce yeah. ball here in the States. And then um, and having flower shops and being able to go and, and buy these flowers and buy the and, and go to these markets uh, on the weekends, you know, and sometimes yeah. even during the week you had the flower stands and, and just very, very different. But every corner I would stop off because I just could not resist not having the pastries. And so I gained like <laughs> instead of gaining the the what they call a freshman 15 or like the 15 yeah. pounds, I call it the junior 30. Because I doubled that, you know, <laughs> when my family um, 
traveled, my, my parents and my, my siblings traveled to see me during Christmas holidays, my father, the first thing that came out of his mouth was like, wow, you look so healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I was healthy uh, by yeah. American standards, uh, and I had gained. But I, I mean, I walked everywhere, and I love that aspect of of walking. And so we took primarily, in answer to your latter question, we took. I was at the university, but I wasn't taking uh, the courses in French per se, with the rest of the French students at the university, I was taking French with all the foreign exchange students. So we had a separate section in the university that we were sectioned to, mm. and then were offered one class that we could take uh, at the university with the rest of the French students, you know? And so of course that class can be very fast uh, spoken. It's not going to be as conducive to a foreign exchange student. And so we got the full experience, if you will. Um, yeah. and, and then you had the immersion with the family. Uh, and of course, you know, you, you're, when you're there, you're going to make mistakes because it's not your first language and yeah. you're not going to make mistakes <laughs> in a good way. You're going to make mistakes in a very funny way. You know, there it, within a month of being there, I had um, the beautiful experience of being introduced to my French parents' extended family and their boyfriends. And so we were at a dinner and being a, a you know, a Mexican student, if you will, uh, in a foreign country, we weren't used to the six courses y'all eat, like the smaller courses. <laughs> <laughs> Not at the beginning anyways, I got used to it later. Uh, but at the beginning, I still wasn't used to it. And I got very full by the fourth course. And so my mom, my French mom came around and kind of offered me a different plate. And I was trying to be polite. And I thought I said, no, thank you. I'm already full. Evidently, I didn't say that. I said something along the lines of, no, thank you. I'm pregnant like a cow. <laughs> and so they're sitting there like, oh, my gosh, we know what you meant, but we're really trying hard not to laugh. And, you know, you make a mistake like that, you're going to <laughs> And, you know, being the self-conscious college student that you are. Yeah. You're not going to want to speak after that, but um, <laughs> the only way to be fluent is to get out of that. Yeah, yeah, to push past that. And I do, because the next day I like vowed I'm this determined, tenacious person. Uh, and and I go out and I, I'm determined to be fluent in French and not just fluent in French, but fluent in their culture to really understand how to speak like them, how to dress, how to eat like them, really, truly immerse myself in their mm -hmm. culture. And so I go the very next day and I sit in the metro station and I just watch them. I watch them. I must have looked like the biggest American stalker, you know, of them. And I'm just like watching them and I'm trying to tune into how they're interacting with each other. Are they being rude to each other? And they are. They're very rude to each other. They're not just rude to Americans. They're rude to each other. So, you yeah, know, more so to a foreigner. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, we found that with the French. Even even their entente cordial isn't all that cordial. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not. <laughs> So, we, you know, that's why we've had a fight with them a few times. But, but the thing is, then you learn, you know, they're good points too. They're very loyal. They're, you know, they're the type of people, yes, they're harder to get to know, but, uh, but once you get to know them and be part of their inner circle, it's very hard to leave that inner circle. And that's important too, because one of my top values is, is loyalty. And mm -hmm. I grew up with two very loyal uh, parents in their in their very special way, right? And um, and that's a big value of mine. And so from that perspective, I learned, you know, th that's the beautiful part of their culture as well. And they really enjoy life uh, versus the American culture that is work, 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 more, 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 achieve, achieve, yeah. achieve. It's never enough. Success, success. I mean, like this insatiable drive to succeed because you're constantly competing and yeah. the French aren't like that or you guys really um, no. I didn't get I mean, that French, when I traveled French, French is from my experience uh, inherently lazy and they'll, they'll strike at the drop of a hat and uh, and and 
and they don't like aristocracy either. And yeah, they'll have no. their heads off before you you can blink. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, the French the French are a different breed to the English, of course. <laughs> I'm not going to dispute that, man. That's between y'all. <laughs> y'all figure that one out. <laughs> so what happened when you got back to the States then? I get back in the summer of 1995. So I left in the summer of 94 and I came back in the summer of 95 so I could finish college with my class and graduate within four years. And mm. uh, it was a pleasure to come back and be able to do that. Um, spend some quality time with my family in South Texas. And then I went to Austin College and finished that up and and then graduated with honors, which was such a pleasure at the end. You mm. know, it's not really where you start, but it's how you finish um, all these chapters. And I finished in such a strong note. And I was so excited, you know, to have my degree. And my father, I remember him being so proud. Mm. So... So what was your first job when you left college? What did you go and do? I actually went to be an administrative assistant um, at the Greater Dallas Hispanic Chamber of Commerce because Dallas, Texas is very close to um, Austin College. It was just an hour away, south from where I was. And a bunch of us that graduated ended up living there. So at least I had a couple of friends from college that Mm. I could hang out with. And so it wouldn't be as hard, but that job only lasted um, six months. And then I started studying for my um, law school entrance exam, the LSAT, uh, but it was really not something that was filling my heart with joy. I, I was in transition. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did not want to be a financial burden to my parents. So I um, interviewed with a pharmaceutical company. Hoffman LaRoche and got a entry level position with them and moved back down to South Texas uh, for about a year or so uh, living alone until I ended up meeting my first husband and marrying him fairly quickly after moving back to South Texas. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what was your job uh, in that company? What did you at, do? At Hoffman uh, LaRoche, I was an entry-level pharmaceutical rep. So I basically called on medical offices and I launched several new products into the market. Um, so it was a very interesting job for me. Uh, at first, I was kind of bored with it because it wasn't what I envisioned. You know, I really wanted to work in the international arena and I tried to find a job in Dallas and that didn't pan out. It felt like every door was closing in my face. So I ended up working in medical sales, uh, which was a very responsible job and it paid well. But I was working long hours. And because I got married um, so young, I was 24 at the time, I wasn't really happy in my marriage. I I got married because I thought I was that was the next step. Even though as I was walking mm-hmm. down the aisle, I heard um, you know a prompting inside of me say, "Turn around and go in the opposite direction." And I did not <laughs> listen to my intuition. I, yeah, I wasn't doing. Yeah, I wasn't doing that. Um, I'm I'm a very faith based person now, um, but at the time I didn't have that relationship with God that I have now. But um, I did not listen to him. <laughs> he said, "Please don't do this." Um, and I married this guy that was 12 years my senior. You know, I mm. I obviously had some daddy issues, right, to resolve. I did not know it subconsciously. I picked someone that was not an affectionate person. Um, very hardworking, very, um, very driven in some aspects, but and very similar to my dad and his negative qualities, if you will. Mm. And so I thought it was natural for me to pick someone like that and marry someone like that. So Hoffman LaRoche was really an escape for me to work in an arena um, that gave me that responsibility and that achievement I craved uh, so much because I craved the achievement so I could get the significance from others. You know, Mm. I craved that recognition since I didn't have it growing up from my own father. I craved it outside of myself forever. And it was almost like I was I was trying to gain his approval from working in an arena that he would be proud of me Mm. 
even though it did not make me as happy. And so within like three years of working with that company, I transitioned over to Pfizer and I was still uh, married to my first husband. And I began that different, I stayed in that same arena for a while until I got this inkling I wanted to get promoted, you know, and um, six years into our marriage, we decided to have a child. Um, And I say he, I was just trying to really satisfy uh, my dad had begun this medical journey. He had a brain tumor and a stroke. And the thought of losing my father before he even had a chance of being a grandfather was something that I kind of felt responsible to 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 make sure that he experienced that, right? Because I was the only one that was married at the time. And so I kind of felt that responsibility. And so I give in to my first husband's desires to have a child, um, even though I'm not in love with this guy, you know, and I'm unhappily married. But Andres, my firstborn, is the joy of my life. Like he's born and I I don't I see joy and happiness and I pour my life into this little boy's life and my work becomes my saving grace, right? Um my saving grace from a marriage that is really not really meant for me. And um I started wanting to get promoted, right? And three or four years go by and Pfizer says no, no, no. And every time I, I, they tell me no, it just increases the drive in me to get promoted. And um, in 2007, I finally get my shot at getting promoted. Mm. And within six months of that promotion, my first husband asked for a divorce. And it's, it's, it's interesting because I get promoted at Pfizer and all the no's uh, later make sense. But at the time, I come into a, a sales territory that is dead last in the region. And when that happens in corporate America, the microscope gets very large <laughs> and people are looking at you very, very closely to see if you're going to be able to pull off this job or not. You know, and so I get a lot of pressure put on me by the company to make it happen because the the guy who had had the territory before for two years had not sold one dollar of one of the major drugs that Pfizer was putting on the market. It was a brand new drug and my territory had not one dollar sold. And so when they give me the promotion, they're like, you have six months to turn this thing around. And then I have the first husband that says, you know what, I've had enough. We're not happy. And so. I want out. And so I'm dealing with the divorce with a young child. He's four years old and with the pressure and the responsibility and the commitment I've made to Pfizer to turn this thing around. And so I escape my pain, right? I evade it completely and I dive into work. And because I already feel not enough and I feel rejected, you know, by my first husband, even though I knew deep down this was the best choice for all of us, you know, I still, it's a kick in the ego, you know, and it, yeah. and, it, and it's still a divorce and it's still a loss of a life. And your little boy is now suffering immensely. Mm-hmm. And it's because you had something to do with that too. And so once again, it's, it's, um, it was a joyful and yet a stormy time in my life stormy in the sense that I'm trying to help my son cope with the divorce and joyful in the, in the sense that I'm able to turn that territory around and I am standing in front of 300 of my peers within a year of the promotion, accepting the number one spot. And with that comes more money and more significance, you know, so I'm gaining this achievement and it's making me, you know, want, want it even more, you know, it's not enough Mm -hmm. to be number one. It's never enough. Right. And so I dive into it even harder after that. And so I'm working like 50 to 60 hour work weeks. And so now my little boy, instead of just feeling the abandonment from the dad who's now moved out of the house, he also feels the abandonment and it starts associating hard work with abandonment mm-hmm. from me. And I don't realize what I'm doing because nobody realizes, nobody starts off being a parent trying to hurt their kids. That's not what we tried to do. We tried to give them the best life possible. And we think that giving them the best life possible is giving them everything they need financially. Mm. But really what kids crave is our love, love. and our time more than anything. Yeah. 
right? Our quality time. Yeah. So that didn't work out too well, did? <laughs> no, but you know, everything happens for a reason. I do yeah. see silver lining in everything that occurred and how it occurred and God's hand in everything in my life. I, I saw his hand when I reflected back into yeah. those years in the book. So so moving on then, um, how did you turn it around? Um, and the first, that first sort of promotion of six months, how did you turn the, the, that negative haven't taken a dime to to sort of getting the number one spot of 300 it really it it starts off with belief you got to believe that you can do it if you don't have the belief that you can step into that identity you're going to fail from the Mm get-go and i not only had the belief but i turned inward for my answers I felt the desire that God placed in my heart to be number one. He was like, I will help you. Because I kept praying throughout my divorce and separation. What do I do? How do I do this? Please guide me. And the guidance came in. He placed a desire in my heart to be number one. And when you have a desire placed in your heart by God, there's a different pull that you feel to to be that person, to become that person. And I had the belief and I had the desire and I had the passion, the drive to do it. I certainly had the drive and that was very much a big part of who I am is my drive, my tenacity. And uh, and I started to just take it one project, one day at a time. And even though I had tons of no's and believe me, I, I did, I still kept moving forward and not giving up. And I started off with smaller accounts. You know, a lot of what the big mistakes that a lot of these reps that I was competing against were making was they were trying to get the biggest piece of the pie. You know, when you look at sales, you look at like, where are those sales coming from? And sometimes the smaller accounts get ignored because they're not big enough. So that's where I started. I started with the low hanging fruit the ones that I could enter and become part of a team. And I started to partner with doctors in a way that was, I wasn't pushing the drug, I was partnering with them. I was gaining their respect and their confidence uh, because the type of medications I was pushing were um, high level antibiotics, antifungals. So these people were really sick in the hospital. And I, the type of sales I was doing, I was having to enter hospitals without appointments. So that was an interesting thing because usually hospitals are very restrictive here and they don't allow just anybody to walk in. But I walked in without appointments and I was able to enter their adapt to their environment. And what really helped me, uh, Tim, was having lived in France. When you live in a foreign country, you learn the skill set of adaptability quite quickly. And when I started to work in the hospital environment, it was becoming that identity. And so I wore scrubs. I did not wear business suits. I befriended the nurses who usually get ignored Usually people go to the doctor straight, but I realized that in a hospital setting, there were more key players than the doctors themselves. There were the search, the directors of the units, and I started to treat them out to dinner and to drinks, you know, which was allowed at the time. And I became very close to them and I became part of their team. Right. And when they came to me with here are the the ideal, you know, uh, people that we can put on your medications, I would listen to the case. And if within two sentences, three sentences, I already knew whether they were ideal candidates or not, um, I would actually decline politely and say, well, I appreciate that you are bringing this patient to my attention. Uh, here are the reasons why they, they are not ideal patients. And I always kept the patient's welfare up front and center, which was the same advice I uh, heard from my therapist when we divorced is to keep my son's interests up front and center. And when you make decisions from that standpoint, anywhere in your life, when you keep people's welfare and interests up front and center and not your own, uh, and you operate from an integ- uh, integrity space, you will gain 
respect and trust and likability. And, mm. and that's how I gained the number one spot. So I started with the smaller uh, accounts and I, and I became part of their team instead of being an outsider. Yeah. So that managed to, to grow fairly quickly and then that gives you the opportunity then to go after the, the bigger, the fish and, uh, yeah. and then catch the whales and, uh, at the end of the food chain. Yeah, very much. That's how I did it. I should write a book on that, though. Really, I think most people would be interested in that book. How did you do that? You know, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. interesting how to get sales by integrating with the people you're trying to sell with. Yeah, it's good. So let's move on a bit. Um, so how long did you spend with Pfizer? How far up the greasy pole did you manage to climb? I actually stayed in the hospital division because I had a son and I was a single mom. I didn't want to move into the management position because the management position meant I would travel about 70 to 80% of the time. And I didn't want to leave my son alone for that long. I traveled enough with just my local territory that I did not want to do that. So I stayed in the hospital division and I worked for them for 12 years. And within that time frame, I uh, met uh, who would become my, my second husband. And uh, so things dramatically changed after 2012 when I nearly died. That really put things in perspective for me really quickly, you know, because corporate America will keep asking more and more from you if you allow them, if you let them. And um, when you nearly die and you surrender to God's will, uh, whatever that looks like in ICU, for me, it was terrifying. But um, but I surrendered and I accepted my fate. Uh, it shifted me completely in, internally. And it mm. shifted my entire life from that moment on. Um, even though I stayed, I still stayed in medical sales like till 2014. Um, 2012 was really a pivotal year, a, a huge turning mm. point in my life. So moving on then, so your life changed a little bit. Just that, just a little bit. So that was kind of a a near-death experience, a a, a bit of a wake-up call? Very big wake-up call. And I think God used it uh, to shift my lens into the author and speaker I am today. Mm. So how did you get into that caper? When I started dating my second husband, I... um, I made the mistake of starting to uh, take birth control pills again. You know, I, I had this fear of getting pregnant. As a Mexican girl, we kind of <laughs> shy away from pregnancy <laughs> outside of marriage. You know, I'd grown up Catholic, so that was like a very bad idea. Mm. And um, and I was already divorced. So I was really incommunicado from the Catholic Church from that point on. So I didn't really want to anger them further. And so I started taking birth control pills. And that was a huge mistake because I had I was already... 36 years old. Uh, So I was past the threshold of 35. And that is a big deal when you're taking birth control Mm -hmm. pills, um, because the risk of developing blood clots and pulmonary embolisms almost quadruples. And I didn't know it. I had safely taken them with my first husband, never had issues with them. And so I thought it would be safe. And evidently not, because within two months of taking them, I ended up walking into St. Luke's Episcopal Hospital with severe chest pain. And I didn't know why. Uh, I had taken a plane ride the day before because my boyfriend at the time, uh, Donnie, had invited my son and I to visit Louisiana for Easter weekend. And it's a big deal in Louisiana. They do a crawfish boil. And he wanted my son to meet his family. And so for a single mom, that was a big deal because, you know, we don't really date per se. Uh, <laughs> we, we really just want a more serious relationship because we have kids. And so for me, it was a sure sign that he intended to marry me. And so I really wanted my son to meet his family. And so despite my mother's like warnings to not get on that flight, because I had turned like absolutely pale uh, a day before and uh, she had put her head to my chest and felt it was really tight. She really insisted I call my brother, who is a doctor. Um, and so I consulted with my brother over the phone. And so he was like, he he looked at me, he was like, okay, you're 37 years old, you're super healthy because I was exercising 
exercising seven days a week, um, perfect health. And so he's like, you know what? It sounds like inflammation of the lining of the lung. It's like super common, but it's very painful. And so just take this, you know, because when you're part of a a medical family, they don't really listen to you when you're talking to them. (laughs) They just kind of like, yeah, take Tylenol, no big deal. You know, you're fine. You're fine. (laughs) They don't think you're going to have this life-threatening thing, you know? And, um, And so I fly. I take a flight, which is a very big no-no with blood clots. That's like a death sentence. Um, And I take a very short flight with my son and we we fly into Houston, Texas, which is the medical center in Texas. So huge blessing to end up there. And luckily we spent the night and in the middle of the night I had experienced what felt like 50 knives were piercing my chest. So it just jolts me out of bed. And the very first miracle I received that weekend is a prompting, a very like insistent prompting to lean forward so I can breathe. And so I lean forward for four hours and I don't realize that this saves my life until I walk into the ER the next day. And the doctor who sees me after they take scans of my lungs uh, comes into my room and he says, you're a lucky woman to be alive. Because that pain you felt last night were two blood clots that had passed through your heart to get to your left lung. And I just sat there like stunned. Uh, And he goes, but that's not the end of it. Uh, We have a problem with your liver and we don't know what's going on with it, but we can't check till tomorrow. So you admit it in a stable condition uh, in a, just in a room, right? In a one of the normal rooms and so but the problem is my son is outside with my boyfriend who he's only met like twice before in his life and so he's little he's six years old you know yeah. and i'm like i gotta call people to come and pick up this kid because i don't know when i'm gonna leave I, I just don't know what my condition is and the very next day you know i managed to get somebody to come up pick him up my mom flies up and this guy, I'm thinking, this guy's going to leave me. He doesn't. He sticks around, um, <laughs> which is a good thing. It's a blessing. And they do a second scan on just the liver to see what's going on. And then I, that's when I get six doctors in my room. And that's, that's bad news. Because, you know, I had learned to read a room rather quickly. And I saw grim <laughs> on their faces. And they said, we have a huge problem. It goes, you have, we're racing against time, Sylvia. Um, We're going to treat you with something that's not normally done in in your condition. Uh, You have a large blood clot and it's blocking the blood supply to your liver. And if it does that, you're going to require a transplant. And, and, and Annie tells me, you see the three doctors on your right. And I, and I look sheepishly over and, and they kind of like wave at me and I'm like, great, who are these guys? They're the transplant team is what they explain. And I'm like, wow. So I, I'm like sitting there stunned, you know, and in a moment of just sitting there, my mind goes blank, but the only image I have is of, of surrendering to God, like in his arms. And I just Mm -hmm. say, okay, I surrender to you. You're, it's your will now. It's your will. And I accept it, whatever that comes. And so I'm wheeled uh, in a very highly emotional uh, way to the ICU to start treatment that is not common for this very deadly condition. Now, they had explained it to my father and my siblings, who are all doctors, that I had Bud Carey syndrome, and that carries an 80% chance of dying. And so I was given a very slim 20% chance of surviving the night because mm. they really were shocked I had survived at all throughout that time that they were surprised I had hadn't killed me yet that Mm. they had caught it in time and so they start the treatment which is very radical treatment and highly like deadly too Uh, and they tell me they explain to me if this doesn't work we're really going to be in a very bad situation to where we're going to have to do this interventionally and you could die on the table. And so I'm like sitting there, 37 years old, young son, found the love of my life, starting a brand new chapter, and I'm not ready to give up. But I do accept and surrender. And the very next morning, 
a woman with the Catholic diocese comes into the room because, you know, when you get admitted to a hospital, they, at least in the States, they ask you what religion you are. And at the time, I still consider myself Catholic. So this lady with the Catholic diocese walks in and my boyfriend's in the room and she says, do you want to pray with me? And we don't know what my fate is. So at this stage, I'm like, yes, I need a miracle is what I need. And so we start praying the Our Father and the part where it says, thy will be done. I feel presence so immense in the room. I feel this love. I have never, ever done justice, to put it into words. I feel safe and secure and absolutely loved and cradled in God's loving arms. I just feel his presence and it's everywhere. And I also remember feeling um, that I was okay. I, I knew in that moment of his presence in that room that I was going to be okay, that he had given me the miracle that I had prayed for. And she leaves the room and my boyfriend, Donnie, turns to me and says, you felt them too, didn't you? And I just, I couldn't even speak <laughs> in that moment because I, I had had such a powerful encounter. And that's the second miracle I received that weekend. The third and final miracle I receive is uh, when they will me in to see what, if the treatment had worked or not, they see that I have no scarring in my lungs, which is unheard of with the level uh, or the degree of of what happened to me with the pulmonary embolisms. Um, and they're shocked. The medical community is totally shocked. And I'm not because I, I've received my third and final miracle. And so it, it shifts my life forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that uh, an example that I shared with you that how can that not shift you and change you? Yeah. It it puts everything into perspective. Hmm. So what happened after you recovered? Because you clearly recovered because you sat in front of me then. Yeah, I'm still here. So Um, so did did, did you kind of pull the pin on Pfizer and and down test and adjust and and reevaluate your life? I started a a growth journey. I really wanted to understand what my divine soul's purpose was because I knew coming from a medical background that it was a miracle I had survived. And why did I survive? You know, what was it about me? What what was there left for me to do? And I knew that medical sales were really not where I was supposed to be, but it doesn't take, it's not an immediate switch in answer to your question. I take, um, a couple of years to really understand what was happening, you know, uh, to really know what was happening in my life. And I, uh, I stay at Pfizer, but then I don't. I resigned from medical sales in 2014 when the monkey standing behind me, I was, I was pregnant with her. Uh, I, I decide to not be in that life anymore. I just didn't want to be part of that life anymore. And I didn't want to put my kids or my family through that. Um, And I had already moved to Austin, Texas. And I become a stay-at-home parent, but it's a huge transition for someone like me who is used Mm. to working enormous amounts of hours. Uh, And and I, I transition, but I also know what God is doing. He's chiseling away the need to achieve and the need to feel worthy through a, the size of my paycheck, which is what was happening. Yeah. You know, I had, I had put my worth into that. And so it, it takes a couple of years for me to understand patience and his timing. And then one day when this baby girl behind me uh, is in her little chair, I'm journaling and I feel prompting to call a former mentor of mine with the John Maxwell team uh, to, in essence, uh, join their team as a speaker, coach and trainer. And I take the leap. I act on the prompting and I move forward in that and I become a coach and I start an entrepreneurial journey that's been very rewarding since. Hmm. So that's where you got to do the speaking. Yes, I got to do the speaking and and um, and got to be parent to these kids uh, half of the time. So it's been it's been extremely rewarding, extremely extremely rewarding for me. Hmm. And then the pandemic hit, and I started writing. And I started putting all my wisdom in uh, about change and navigating change onto paper. And I became an author, a first-time author in October of last year. And so that's been enormously 
rewarding to me as well. And it helped heal a lot of the past hurts with my father, mm. for example. Yeah. And I put that to, to, to end. I just kind of put that away and it's not hurt me anymore. And a lot of these other beliefs that were really hurtful to me that had really caused a lot of problems in my second marriage don't anymore. So I'm, I'm grateful for that as well. So that's where you are now. And that's where I'm at now. And you got a little monkey climbing. <laughs> Evidently, let her climb over because it's scary, Vivi. Climb over. Climb over because that's very dangerous what you're doing. I told you, she pushes limits. And yeah. um, What's one of them? No, mamita. I can't. I can't right now. So, so what else is there left to say but to say that I'm in the best state of my life really i'm still in that growth mode you know mm. I, i've never i've never stopped growing and i i don't ever intend to because i know my relationship with others with christ with myself with my own intuition has been extraordinary it's been an extraordinary yeah. journey this far and this little monkey keeps bothering me <laughs> <laughs> I told you, nail one foot to the floor and she'll run down in circles. I mean, I mean, I can't. Yes, I understand that. Get down. We're almost done. Give us, give us a couple of minutes. Okay. <laughs> she goes, it's been... Okay. So, where can people find your book? You know, if you want an autographed copy, you can email me directly to Sylvia at S. V I L L A L O B O S W O R S H A M dot com. Or if you want to go on Amazon, which is the equivalent, I don't know what the equivalent is in the UK because I know there is an equivalent. Amazon. Okay. Amazon. They can Quick order it Amazon. Amazon. And anywhere online, it could be bought online because I've had people in the UK buy it and I've had people in Canada internationally buy it and it is available for them. And it is a book about navigating change written from the coaching and slight faithful perspective because I jo I meet people where they're at in their faithful journeys and not everybody's in the same place. Some are still fairly angry with their higher source, God, however you want to call him. To me, it's always going to be God because I have a an, a very strong relationship with him. But it's not the same for everybody else. It could be energy, mm. universe. It could be, you yeah. know, lots of different ways he shows up. So, Well, today's uh, the longest day and the Druids are out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're pagans. Uh, but there you go. Well, Sylvia, thank you very, very much. I've enjoyed that. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It, it was down memory lane in such a joyful way, so I appreciate it. That's a pleasure. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.